Thank you, Bob, so much for helping out this morning. Thank you. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. God, we understand that singing about blood is strange. But Father, we sing because the song is true. The blood of your Son washes us completely clean. And we give you thanks this morning, Father. Because without Christ, without his blood, without his merit, we have nothing before you. So God, I pray this morning that as we look to your word, you would speak to us. That God, please be with me, help me speak well and accurately. And in such a way, Father, that I not block the message of this text. God, be with everyone who listens. Watch over their minds as they hear. Help us all comprehend this truth by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit who causes us to look to and behold and believe in your Son. This we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. First of all, before I start the message this morning, I want to thank all of you so much. I want to thank the church for your kindness this past week to me, to my family, and the loss of my grandfather. I, I got to the um, funeral home. Friday night was the viewing. Yesterday morning was um, the actual service, late morning. Um, and there were two. There was a bouquet and a, a beautiful wind chime from the church, and then there was a, a, a very nice, very beautiful blanket from the deacon specifically. And I just want to. I want to thank all of you for that. Um, I want to thank Carol McIlvain because I, I, I don't mean to not mention all those that have helped. Everyone has been wonderful. We've gotten cards. It's been wonderful. But Carol stopped by just as we were getting ready to leave on Friday with a bag of Doritos, dill pickle chips, and uh, pretzels, which didn't make it to the border. And uh, and and fudge and it was just it was all, all all the things that you've done for us this past week is so kind. Thank you so much. It was really amazing to walk in to that funeral home in Tennessee and and see your name there. You know, see the church there, and that just meant so much. So thank you all very much. Thank you so much. God calls those who believe in His Son elect exiles in the world. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God gives us our identity and He defines who we are from heaven based on what He has done for us, what He has promised to give to us what he says about us. Peter grounded our hope by taking our eyes to our great salvation's future. In the beginning of the text, now he takes our eyes to our great salvation's past here in the middle of this text. Our lives here in exile are not insignificant or looked over by our God. Not one of us is off his radar. No matter what we might do for a living or how old or how young we are or how much we uh, make or what we've accomplished or failed to. So in just a few verses here in chapter 1 of First Peter, 
He heightens the importance of our salvation by revealing that the prophets long ago predicted it and the angels themselves long to look into it and understand it. The fulfillment of God's grand design, beloved, for human history is being realized in us, in you and I, in His church. The big reality then, the narrative that shapes our lives and makes us who we are is God's plan to save sinners and bring them to Himself forever through His Son, Jesus Christ. You and I, every believer all over the world from every nation and tribe and language and people is part of the story God has been telling since before He created the world. That's what grounds our lives this morning, beloved. That's who makes us what we are. Not what we are able or fail to achieve for ourselves, but what God has already guaranteed for us through the work of His Son on our behalf. So now may we hear and believe God's Word together. First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Peter continues talking about how great their salvation is. He's, remember, building a case for hope, for elect exiles, for struggling people below. He's grounded that in our future inheritance. He grounds it in their present possession, right? The joyful faith that shows they will obtain it. And here, in the last few verses of his introduction, before he heads into the instructions about how to live as elect exiles in a fallen world, he grounds their hope now in salvation's past. Notice how he starts verse 10 there, concerning this salvation. So salvation is the link between these two paragraphs. That's what Peter's talking about. And Peter looks back over salvation's history over God's plan to save as it has been unfolding through history. And he says that the Old Testament prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be theirs in Asia Minor. And by extension, through the Holy Spirit, ours here in America. This salvation can be summarized in that one beautiful word, grace. That's all it is. Pure, wild, free, sovereign, undeserved, amazing grace from God to us. But they didn't just prophesy about it as mere fact. So realize that. The, the, the prophets didn't just get the information and, and, and deliver it out. They focused on it. They thought about it. They, the text says um, they searched and inquired carefully about it. Right? They, they, they searched and inquired meticulously about everything they were hearing. Those two verbs go together, searched and inquired with a modifier, carefully, because he wants us to show, to, to see how passionately they examined it. Paul points in these verses is, is that he, or, or Peter, his point in these verses is that he and his audience, all of us, are so immeasurably blessed because we live in a time when what was predicted has come to pass. We're now on the other side 
of prophecy. That's how we know he's talking about Old Testament and not New Testament prophets here, by the way, because that wouldn't make any sense if it was talking about New Testament prophets searching and inquiring. They don't need to. They live in the same era that Peter does and Peter's audience do. They wouldn't have been strangers to these things. They also lived in fulfillment of these things. So Peter is looking back to the Old Testament era and saying, okay, those prophets, Enoch, Moses, Samuel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Habakkuk, Joel, Amos, right, Jonah, all of them, their best days as prophets were spent searching and examining and pouring over manuscripts and prophecies and sermons from one another maybe, trying to find all of this out, trying to figure all of it out. In verse 11, what they searched and inquired carefully about primarily was what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. They wanted to know who would bring about this day of grace that was coming, right? What was His name? What would He be like? When would it all happen? When would He come? When would all these things take place? It turns out that it was the breath of the Lord Jesus Himself that carried the Old Testament prophets along. It was Jesus the whole time. It is, after all, as Revelation 19.10 reveals, the testimony of Jesus that is the spirit of prophecy. All along, even in the days of the Old Testament prophets, Jesus was there by the Holy Spirit, moving, predicting, shaping, telling, preparing. The same spirit that authoritatively and divinely inspires Every page of the New Testament was present and doing the exact same thing all throughout the Old Testament. All Scripture, every word is breathed out by God, by His Holy Spirit, testifying specifically and primarily to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. All things, even Scripture, have been made through Jesus and for Jesus to testify to Him, to reveal Him, to point to him, It was the Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament prophets that predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's why when we come to the four Gospels, for example, we read statements from Jesus himself like Luke 18.31 when Jesus said, see we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written, he would know everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Or Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. It was the Son of Man, Jesus, that told the prophets everything the prophets wrote about Him. His suffering was necessary because He had predicted it. If it doesn't come to pass, His word is voided. Jesus knew what He would go through when He came. He had predicted it and made it known to them. God's Word is so tightly woven, no man can tear it apart. Jesus has always been there, before the world existed, and then driving every moment, driving all of history to get to the point where He would step out of heaven and come and do what none of us could do and redeem sinners for the glory of God by His own blood and righteousness. So when the New Testament reveals in Acts 3.24 that all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after Him proclaim these days, His days, 
Or in Acts 10.43, that all the prophets bear witness to Jesus that forgiveness of sins would come through His name. That's because Jesus was speaking to the prophets. That's why all they actually talked about was Him. Paul told Agrippa in Acts 26, 22 and 23 that he didn't preach anything that hadn't first been said by Moses and the prophets. That Jesus would suffer. He would be the first to rise from the dead and then proclaim light to the Jews and the Gentiles. It was the Spirit of Jesus Christ that predicted the sufferings and the subsequent glories of Jesus Christ. So, while there is very clear discontinuity throughout Scripture, between the Old and New Covenants, that is, there is also some radical continuity between the two. And that is focus here for these believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They're hearing something amazing here. Paul is telling them something almost unbelievable. The first of which is this. Your Savior, the one who's appearing you wait for with living hope, His life was just like ours will be. He's the prototype. Suffering first, then glory. You notice that link between verses 6 and 7. The glories come after the suffering, even for the Son of Man, even for Jesus. So God is not clowning us, struggling believer. It's not a game. It's not happening in a vacuum, struggling saint. No, His Son's path laid the path for us. He has preceded us in suffering. That's the path even Jesus took to glory. So when you're on your knees and you can't breathe anymore under the weight of your own struggle or your own sin or your own self, Jesus can draw near to you and put His saving arms around you and say, with the exception of sinning, I know. I know exactly what you are going through. I know exactly what you feel. I felt it all. Let me pick you up. Let me help you keep going. I've been there. You'll get home. I'm here. And I won't leave you there to die in your hopelessness. This is who He is for us all the time. We're not above our Master. We're in the arms of our Master. Engraved on His hands. What Jesus started, Jesus will finish. He lived the life you and I cannot. And now He stands not only to forgive us, but to be that perfect righteousness and perfect faith that you and I could never perform. Our struggling, our trials, the reason we're left in this world then is to portray the hope He gives us to a world that if it's honest, knows it has nothing to cling to. Knows it has nothing to cling to. And I don't say that in like a self-righteous way looking down on the world. I was just at my grandfather's funeral. Our, our, Our family is very divided politically, religiously. It's very awkward sometimes. And nowhere was that awkwardness more pronounced to me anyway than it was yesterday. It was just odd. And I listen to my uncles, to my mom, whom I love so much and care for so much. And I hear what they say. And I hear where they're putting their hope. And it's, it's, again, it's, it's not like a... It's not like we're, we say as believers that, that to the world, like we don't want to have an attitude like, like we have it figured out and they're so dumb or something or less than us because they don't believe. 
Beloved, they don't know. They don't believe the right thing. Our, our, they don't know that. And you and I don't know it because we're smarter than them. You and I don't know it because we're more enlightened than them. You and I know the truth and believe the truth because as of right now, God has opened our eyes and hasn't yet opened theirs. So we, we, we want to be a people with mercy for the world that doesn't see. We don't want to look down on the world for not seeing. That path, beloved, suffering then glory, is God's design for elect exiles. That's the design. Suffering first, trial first, then glory. And again, the reason we press that throughout First Peter is that so, as Peter will say in chapter 4, that it doesn't surprise you. That, that you don't find yourself alone in the dark wondering if God is there or not because you're struggling. You, Peter does not want the people of God to get to that place because you don't need to get there. You don't need to be alone. You're not alone. It's not outside of the plan that you might be suffering. It is not outside of the design. We need hope because we're supposed to be in the fray of the world. The suffering Peter is talking about here will be unique to those that have a hope that they actually have to defend, which is where Peter will go in chapter 3. If we hope in the same things then that the world does to find our identity, to feel secure, the same structures and authorities they depend on, we won't look like we have hope. But when we hope in that which is invisible, it will say something different to the world. Then my way is right, your way is wrong, I see it, you don't see it. That's all categorical. That's not what sets us apart. What sets us apart is the fact that underneath everything, we're going through the same things they're going through, that we have this indestructible hope. And that's why Jesus would leave us here. Not because he wants to punish us, like we need to earn what he's done. Jesus took our punishment for us. Your trials are not God punishing you. He leaves us here because he loves sinners. Because he has a people and there will be, by God's sovereign decree, by the same predicting decree that Jesus proved would be kept by his sufferings and glory, there will be a people from every tribe and language and people and nation gathered around the throne. That will happen. Throwing down their crowns, singing new songs to the Lamb. Revelation 5 will happen. That is why we are here. And our hope in the gospel we proclaim, the Savior at the center of it, is the tone of that mission. We're on mission with hope. We're not on mission with fear and anger and bitterness and vitriol. That's not who we are. That's not who we are. That shows there's no hope. Notice what Peter reveals in verse 12. This is almost unbelievable when you take it at face value. And it probably took his readers completely by surprise before it achieved its purpose of removing every reason they had to doubt. Listen to God's word in verse 12. Let's just read it again. It was revealed to them, the Old Testament prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. Remember his Gentile, predominantly Gentile audience, like you and me. 
serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news, which we know is the word, later in 1 Peter 1, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Did you catch what Peter just said? These struggling believers just heard that God actually revealed to the Old Testament prophets that they lived in an era that was incomplete. And that the primary thrust and goal of their ministry was not their immediate context, but that of Peter's audience, of you and I. The Old Testament prophecies don't just apply to Peter's readers. They were intended for Peter's readers. These men, in the things that pertain to salvation, the things that have now been announced and have now been made known in the good news, in the Word, in the Gospel preached to them, served them. Now, the man writing this is Peter. Peter is a Jewish man, through and through. This is a guy who in Acts 10, when three sheets with all kinds of previously unclean food came down, said, Lord, I've never eaten anything called common or unclean. This is a guy who needed a vision from God to go to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius. Peter is a man who still needed rebuke by Paul long after Pentecost because he didn't want Jewish people to see him eating and fellowshipping with Gentiles in Antioch. And he writes to these predominantly Gentile believers that the Old Testament prophets of Israel were actually serving you Gentiles by the same Holy Spirit that testifies to our Gospel now. Peter is telling them, you live in the days of fulfillment, all of you, when everything the Old Testament prophets prophesied about God's grace and salvation are no longer longing for a future. They've come to fruition. You possess what they were prophesying about Angels wish they could examine these things more closely. And you have them in your hearts right now. He draws a very clear distinction between those two eras in Scripture, the old and the new. And the new is far superior. These believers live in a better covenant, mediated through a better high priest named Jesus, and established on better promises than any promise that came before. That's Hebrews 8, 6. In fact, Paul says believing Gentiles, like Peter's audience, are fellow heirs with believing Israel. Fellow heirs. Not two people. One people. One new man. In place of the two. Members of the same body. Partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's Paul in Ephesians 3, 5 and 6. six. He takes up the same idea as Peter there in Ephesians when he also reveals... That we have, that what we have was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and New Testament prophets by the Spirit. Peter is lifting up their hope by saying to them, do you all realize where you are on God's timeline? It's the essence of his argument here. You realize what you have. 
You realize that God has been moving every moment of history to get to this point, to the days that you now live in? He's talking to you and I this morning, beloved. He's with you. You are not alone. You were the whole point. You're not a parenthesis. You were the whole point for the glory of God. Peter believes that if our eyes can get fixed on what God has accomplished for us in Christ, if we can get our eyes fixed on that, this is Peter's belief under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that if he can get our eyes fixed on what God has accomplished for us in Christ, which where we are on the timeline proves what God has accomplished in Christ, if we can get our eyes fixed on that, we will have hope that cuts through the weight of our trials in this world. This is good news for those below, especially when life can feel so trivial and so empty sometimes. That who are we? Who am I? What are we doing? What is my life for? What's the point, right? Is God with me? You feel that in all different stages of life. You know, I, I, is God with me? I flip burgers. I sell real estate. I go down into the mine. I balance spreadsheets. I go to school. I'm retired. I raise my kids and I try to keep the house clean. Beloved. Believing remnant. Every single one of you live in days that the Old Testament prophets would have died to see and live in. Did you know that? That when you wake up into the next Monday of what you think is a trivial or banal existence, the saints of the Old Testament look at it and say, Oh, I want to be there. I want to be there. The Old Testament prophets searched and searched and searched and studied to know what you and I know. Every single believer in this room, regardless of what you do for a living, regardless of where you are in your life today, has something of which the angelic host of heaven says, I want to know what that is. God, explain that to me. They say that about what you have Creation itself is groaning, awaiting the moment when our bodies will be redeemed at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Romans 8.23. In that hope, we were saved, Paul says. I love this book. I love the Bible. It reveals my Savior to me. It contains everything we need in one unified narrative as God progressively unfolded His plan from one different era to the next. Come to this book with respect. Come to this book not thinking you'll be able to figure it all out. Come to it with brokenness and humility. It contains eternal things. We, we deal in eternity when we come on Sunday mornings, when we gather for our classes, when we meet to study God's Word. And here Peter helps us understand something about the nature of Scripture here. Peter was the one that preached the first sermon of the Christian church, really, in Acts chapter 2. And he used the Old Testament. He used the Psalms where David spoke of himself 
person, but then it's revealed through Peter that it was actually Jesus speaking through David. We understand that Peter had an obvious paradigm for his interpretation of Scripture. When we read this, understand that, remember, these are the men, Peter and the other apostles, these are the men that heard Jesus personally explain to them how to understand the Old Testament. So the only way to properly understand and interpret the Old Testament is through the New Testament apostles. It's the only way. Peter obviously went to the text like this. That's what he's telling us. So Peter goes in, for example, okay, when I read Isaiah, I'm looking at things that were ultimately given to serve a future people by how they testify to Jesus in the gospel. So that's what the prophets were doing. It wasn't so that Israel would know what to do after a rapture, for example. It's not what it was for. It was for the church to have hope as elect exiles. That's what it was for. The Bible cannot be understood correctly, beloved, if we start in Genesis and by the time we get to Malachi, we have it all figured out. And then we just try to squeeze all the rest into that. Because then we read the New Testament and we can't let it stand as authoritative. We've already got it all figured out, so we're trying to squeeze what we see there into what we already think we know from the old. That's backwards. That's what Peter is alluding to here. That's backwards. Genesis to Malachi is God's perfect, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. But it deliberately, by God's design, doesn't contain all the information. The decoder isn't there, is what Peter is telling us. So if we're trying to interpret the New Testament in light of the Old Testament, rather than the other way around, that's like putting something together with half the instructions. Or worse... It's like having something that you're building, finally getting all the instructions and refusing to alter it in light of getting the instructions. We need the whole picture if we're going to have the right picture. And the way to interpret Scripture, the reason it was written, had not been revealed until Jesus came and revealed it to His apostles. And yes, Malachi, by the way, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament as much a part of God's story about His Son as every other book is. It contains those unique little words and pointers to something greater. Malachi 1, 11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. Malachi and his audience would have understood that language. And a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Do you know what's going on in First Peter? God's name is great among Asia Minor. That's what's happening. They live in the day when God's light had dawned. The light of the gospel that would bring the news of this great salvation to all the nations. When redeemed sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation offer up their bodies as living sacrifices. Pure incense. Cleansed by Jesus as a pleasing aroma to the Lord because their hope is living in heaven with Jesus. That's a people. A people with true hope that can count everything as lost for the sake of knowing Him. They can forsake everything in this world and say with all their hearts, just give me Jesus. That is what was meant to set the church apart. That this person, invisible, remember chapter 1 earlier, 
You, you don't see him, yet you believe. That's what was meant uniquely to set the church apart. That you have this hope in something you cannot see. That cuts through the world in a unique way. And Peter is telling them all this grand biblical theology here for that reason. For their hope. Right? Peter wanted them to read the Old Testament prophets for hope, not to get smarter. There's a difference. The grand design of salvation, the outpouring of God's grace on the world, is not just for our theology. It, nothing in the Bible is there so that you can win an argument and look cool in Bible study. Nothing in the Bible is there for that. Everything in the Bible is there for our hope that says to the world, what is it you have? Right? Knowledge doesn't do that. Every, there are, there are people that don't know anything about Jesus that, that are a billion times smarter at, at the I can recite facts level than we will ever be. That doesn't set us apart. What sets us apart is when the world is crumbling around us, we don't. And that isn't like a challenge. Be strong, stand up, be tough. No, 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 no. Lean into Jesus. Lean into Jesus. Let Him stand. They'll see Him through hope in something invisible. They'll see you if your Christianity is all about you. Let them see Jesus. We need hope. Do you understand? That's what Peter is implying here. We need hope. You need hope to live in this world. That's the whole point of First Peter. Maybe when you hear these things, you, you, you look at those verses 10 through 12 and you hear us talking this morning, maybe you say, yeah, but I, I need sermons for real life. Right? I don't know how this relates to my everyday life. And I would say to you, as gently as I can, what is real life for the believer? You, no, it, Tony, it's just semantics. No, no, no. Your semantics reveal what you actually believe. What is real life? What is it that is the actual you? The actual real you where you live? The mundane of every day? Beloved, if God doesn't live in your mundane, He doesn't live in you. Because the mundane is where you and I live. He, he has to be there. He has to be there, beloved. What is everyday life for an elect exile? You and I are not floating through this world on clouds of individual hopes and dreams. And we found this God that has all these resources. And now he can be kind of employed as a means to all of the things we want to accomplish that we would want to accomplish, frankly, whether we ever knew Jesus or not. It's just now maybe I can get some like, if I live righteously enough, my business will be blessed. Oh, then explain the businesses that are profiting without thinking of Jesus at all. That's not the way it works, beloved. God is not a genie. He's not a genie. He's not there to make this world home. He's there because this world isn't. And it can't be. It can't be. We're part of something infinitely bigger than we are. We're part of someone else's grand design. And sometimes we want the Bible to instruct us as though we were permanent citizens. But you'll notice the Bible is extremely frustrating if that's what you think of Christianity. 
that you know it's it's a way to heaven here. The Bible's not written like that. It's not written for permanent citizens, beloved. It's written for pilgrims. We have to understand this. We have to understand it. I don't mean like so you can win an argument. I mean for the hope of your soul. We must understand this. We are pilgrims here. We're sailing through a world where all the other ships are sinking. Our job is to pull people on to the boat. We aren't permanent citizens. It's not all going to work here. It was never meant to. Beloved, Jesus has called us to himself for himself. We won't fully experience our hope if we don't find our identity in Jesus and his grand design for the world. Beloved, I just want you to know where you are. I mean that with all of my heart. I want you to, to in, in the everyday moments of your life, from, from student to retiree, I want you to know where you are. Right, do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verses 16 and 17, speaking of Isaiah's prophecy <laughs> about those who can't and won't understand? Jesus says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. See what, Jesus? Hear what? Him. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people, do you hear how, where Peter got his theology? Do you hear it? For many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We are so blessed. We live in the times when the predictions of the prophets have come to pass. That's Peter's point. He is fueling our hope by showing us where we are on God's timeline. Our salvation testifies to that. These things are not secondary or peripheral. Theology is a means to hope. It's not the end. Old Testament prophets saw from afar. Preachers proclaim it. Angels marvel at it and long to understand it. And you and I actually experience it. We live on the fulfillment side of the promise, looking to consummation. God's saving design transcends, it cuts through all our immediate concerns, not in a way that ignores them. Right? That we're not to, hope is not to check out of reality and put a smile on your face and say, I have no 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 no. It, it's remember the wording of the Bible is just critical. The way those verbs and and, and phrases and predicates are constructed are just critical. Remember Romans 8, when, he, when, when Paul is asking rhetorically, what can separate us from the love of God? So famine or danger or nakedness or peril or sword. He goes on to say, uh, death, you know, anything else in all creation. He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. In them. Not because we don't experience them. That's not what makes you a conqueror now. You are a conqueror now because God is looking at you from the perspective of what Jesus has accomplished, which is what will bring about the end He has promised to us. So in everything I'm going through, not only can it not separate me from Him, but I am presently more than a conqueror. You see, that's not like self-esteem. Oprah can write about it. Like, I'm more than a conqueror. No, no, no. In tremendous and real, actual, everyday life suffering and trial.
Everything we are is about perspective in this world. Everything. God's saving design we find in a text like this embraces the past, the present, and the future. You see that. Peter wants them and us to understand our place within the eternal purpose of God. Our place in God's grand design. That's what decides who you are. Remember, we're elect exiles. God has a plan. And we're in it, beloved. We're in it. Peace comes for our souls when we see ourselves aligned with God's design. And the last times are upon us. And the funny thing is, preachers have been saying that since before the Bible was finished being written. Peter says in 4.7, Behold, the end of all things is at hand. It's still at hand. You, 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 well, then, then where, where is he? If the, end, if the end was at hand back then, right, because from the perspective of eternity, let's say it's, it's 3,000 more years before our Lord returns. Do you know what that looks like from heaven? <laughs> of course, the end of all things is always at hand, beloved. This world is dying in its present form. It's passing away. The end of all things is always at hand for you and I. Did you know that? Young people, when you go to a funeral, you remember that. The end of all things is at hand all the time. I don't say that to exclude the elderly. No, no, no. I mean, I think we start to feel the reality of death as we age. That's all I mean by that. And I just... I. I, I'm not looking to what's going on in the Middle East to know whether or not the end is at hand. The end has been at hand since before, like, there were actual maps. I mean, the the end of all things has always been at hand since Jesus walked out of the grave. Always. And it's always the case now. You live, you and I live in that moment. We live in fulfillment. And we are here with hope for a world that has none outside the light of the world revealed by God in His saving, risen, reigning Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know Him as your Savior, the forgiver of your sins, the master and captain of your soul, your redeemer and the source of your hope? Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Believer, do you know that that's who He is all the time, that He doesn't just apply to the Christian part of your life? He is your life. Do you know this this morning? June is going to come and play. I'm going to close this in prayer and then I'll be standing at the front. If you want to know Jesus, please come down. Tell me. We'll pray. There'll be others here to help if you want to talk to them. If you do know Jesus and you struggle to have hope and you would like to come and pray and work through it, then we can do that too. All right, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the hope that is ours in Christ alone. God, I thank you so much for it. I... You truly transcend every moment. So God, I pray that we would know you this morning, that you would enable us to see you through the fog of this world. And Lord, I pray, I lift up this world that doesn't know you to you, Father, praying that you would 
Send laborers into your harvest. Stir in our hearts, God, if that's what you desire. That we either go or we help send one of the two. Father, be with us in these moments as we consider by your Holy Spirit this text this morning. God, be with us. Help us. Help us see. Help us believe. Help us believe these things are true. I ask and pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the source and giver of all hope. Amen. This morning, everybody, uh, I want to invite you again, if, if, you, if you're able to be with us tonight, we're going to continue through Job. The opening of Job was heavy. Not every sermon out of Job will be that heavy, so if, I, I hope you're not scared off. I pray that you'll come tonight if you can, if you're able. Thank you all for being here this morning. I'm going to pray, and we'll close in a song, and then you'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for being with us. Lord, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this book that is a window to your son, Jesus Christ. May we go to him. May every single person in this room believe on him and come to him through your word, by your word. Watch over the congregation this week, Father. Take care of every person in this room. Watch over them until we gather again. This I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.